This is a Federal News Network podcast. Let's face it, China may no longer be a near peer to the United States militarily. It's likely caught up and could even be ahead. Analysis by Govini finds that to gain or keep an advantage, military leaders don't necessarily need more money. They need better decision science. Here to explain, Govini's vice president of strategy, Billy Fabian. Mr. Fabian, good to have you on. Thanks for having me, Tom. Pleasure to be here. Let's begin with decision science. That sounds like it could be the next big word here, you know, after customer experience or something. What is it? So the Deputy Secretary of Defense, Kath Hicks, has talked about the need in our competition with China for the United States to gain a decision advantage, uh, you know, she, as she puts it, from the boardroom to the battle space. So you have both in warfare, where warfare is becoming more decision-centric, the side that can more rapidly process information and make decisions and then act on the battlefield has an advantage. You also have where China is a economic and technological competitor in a way that the Soviet Union never was during the Cold War, right? Their power in both those fields is only growing. So for the United States, our margin for error is much smaller than it was in the Cold War. You know, we can't simply just like spend our way out of it or rely on us having technological advantage forever. We have to make better decisions. But to do that at the scale and the speed that you need to compete with China in the modern world, you know, it's probably analog methods of just humans making better decisions aren't going to work. So decision science is taking technology, principally artificial intelligence, machine learning, and data at scale and bringing those to bear to make faster decisions with the idea being faster, better decisions, with the idea being that the side that can outwit rather than just outmuscle the other will have the advantage and prevail. Now, that sounds like it makes a lot of sense for an actual conflict situation, but can it also apply this idea of better decisions and decision science to some of the things that take a long time? For example, it's been 20 years since the United States has had a gambit to replace the tanker refueling planes, and 20 years, maybe more than 20 years, there's still no replacement tanker that works yet, or a new bomber or all these decisions on the size of the fleet that take years, sometimes decades to play out, can better decision science help with those kinds of things to build the fundamental capability? Yeah, absolutely. And I think you could argue that the boardroom side might even be more important, that sort of the competition won't be decided in the Taiwan Strait or somewhere in the Western Pacific, but actually on both uh, nations' respective home fronts in who, you know, in sort of day-to-day competition or peacetime or whatever you want to call it, can invest more smartly to be more efficient, to develop the capabilities that they need, have them ready. Because, you know, warfare in many ways is less about like who builds the next generation of tanks or fighter jets or ships, but who can harness the technology that's being driven by the commercial sector and apply it to military functions. And, you know, to do that well, right, I think, as you're alluding to, is difficult, right? And for us to do it better, we need better processes and better capabilities. And to get back to the analogy of Russia in the Cold War era, when the United States developed all of these technologies in the 70s and 80s that gave what they call the strategic offset, you did not have a competitor with the industrial base equal to the United States and now you do in China. Therefore, whatever decision processes worked back then won't necessarily work now. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, so China certainly has you know, some advantages that the Soviet Union never had, right? And, um, and some advantages over us, right? So their civ mill fusion, as they call it, right? Their ability of their government to force their companies 
whether they're state owned or private to work with them and to help aid their efforts, right? Those are advantages. Now, you know, I think the United States still remains like the great engine for innovation in the world. And we have this, you know, amazing economy that creates all this really cool technology for the United States government. It's more about tapping into that and unleashing it for its needs. So it's figuring out how to partner better with the sort of companies that are driving forward these technologies. I guess China likes its military industrial complex. We're speaking with Billy Fabian, Vice President for Strategy at Govini. He's also an adjunct senior fellow at the Center for a New American Security, we should add. And tell us then what are some of the ways you get to better decision science? Is there a technological underpinning that can help people speed up decisions so that they make right ones and good decisions? That's the key, right? It's fast decisions, but also quality decisions. Yeah, so I think, you know, foremost among the sort of technologies that underpin decision science, as I mentioned before, you know, artificial intelligence and machine learning and data at scale. And then there's a bunch of sub-technologies that fold under both of those. But there's a, you know, broader set of technologies that underpin it. So there's the hardware that it would run on. So things like advanced computing and communications. There's the type of technologies that allow humans to better integrate with the machines to benefit from what the data at scale and machine learning is producing to make better decisions. So, you know, things like augmented reality and interfaces and things like that. And then there's a set of applications that are leaders, particularly in the Department of Defense, used to make decisions that are increasingly powered by decision science. So things like modeling and simulation, right? So simulations of future conflicts, synthetic training environments that allow uh, large groups of military personnel to train over long distances, all sorts of technologies like that that are sort of in the decision science umbrella, either enabling decision science or enabled by it. And you've listed 15 decision science prime contract vendors. That is to say, they don't sell decision science as a product, but they sell the elements that can be used to build decision science? Yeah, that's correct. So what we did in the paper was we looked at historical U.S. government spending since 2016, both traditional contract spending and through other transaction authorities, which are you know one of these newer tools that the government has to try and reach sort of more non-traditional partners in the commercial sector and try to organize all that spending and identify the spending that was related to decision science technologies and then taxonomize it and, and to get a better picture of what the U.S. government has been investing in this and who they've been partnering with. It looks like there's a lot of spending on data architecture and storage. That's the easy part. But when you look mm -hmm. at fusion of all that data, which would make this into a decision-making power, not so much. So I think it's an interesting story. So if you look at the total spending by the U.S. government over that period since 2016 on decision science technologies, it was about $30 billion or so. But if you look at the annual levels compared FY16 to FY20, which is the last year we have complete data for, there's a 50% increase in annual spending. So they are spending more on decision science technologies, which I think is a good news story. And I think you're right in that about half of the total spending has been on data at scale and its various components. But the spending on you know, machine learning and AI has also increased. I mean, it's starting from a smaller base, but it's also gone up something over 50%. So, you know, I think it's positive direction, but I think, you know, it is a fair question to say, is it at the scale that we need now, right? Does it need to be ramped up even more? And I think, you know, one of the things to watch for when the president's uh, FY23 budget request comes out soon, you know, sometime in the next couple of months, if there is, you know, an intention 
to spend more of this over the next few years. And a final question has to do with the tradition and culture and process of the Pentagon itself. They operate in five-year cycles, and the kickoff to a cycle is the program objective memorandum, the POM, mm-hmm. which sure. someday hopefully they'll execute on the budget that is justified by the POM. And there's, it's very complicated, and millions of people have to say yes and no. Is there any way that decision lens thinking can somehow rev up that process so there is some real correlation between what they would like as priorities and what actually comes out in their spending patterns? I think certainly decision science could be applied to programming and budgeting for sure. I think, you know, it's, it's actually probably a field that's ripe. Um, you know, there's some, some efforts right now to try and reform that process, which you know, is known as PPBE, planning, programming, budgeting, and execution. Uh, so I think, yeah, it's certainly ripe for decision science. I think it's also interesting how, you know, the department, I think, knows that a lot of the most important technologies for the future, including these decision science technologies, are being developed by the commercial sector and parts of the commercial sector that the government has historically struggled to work with. Um, And I think, you know, like the Department of Defense is aware of this, like Secretary Austin, the Secretary of Defense talked about this at the Reagan National Defense Forum in December. You know, the department has created, or the U.S. government has taken a lot of initiatives to try and improve this through creating technology hubs and incubators and through Congress providing them with new tools like OTAs, other transaction authorities. But, you know, what we found in this report is that one of the areas that's like sort of the most innovative part of the economy and the part that's leading the way on decision science technologies, which would be venture capital and private equity backed companies, you know, generally small startups that despite all those efforts, which were well-intentioned and have shown some promise and done some good, we're still not reaching those companies and the government's still not able to partner with them. Only 4% of the vendors that have worked with the government on decision science technologies since FY16 have been VC or PE backed companies. So very small percentage. And so I think, you know, one of the great challenges and questions going forward is how do we fix that? Because it seems that despite all these efforts, they've largely just been sort of changing things on the margins and not solving the ultimate problem, which is how do you get these companies that have very different incentive structures, you know, to not only succeed when choosing to partner with the government, but there are many that just see the bureaucratic headaches, the risk and say, it's not even worth it. So a whole bit of the economy that the government isn't even getting the chance to work with. Billy Fabian is vice president for strategy at Govini and an adjunct senior fellow at the Center for a New American Security. Thanks so much for joining me. No problem, Tom. It was great to be here. Thank you. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com along with a link to that report. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome, and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader, and what was it about them that inspired you? 
So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she always managed to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have 
ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, And that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, And it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.